When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Heaven's Gate. Welcome to Beyond Human, The Last Call. I'm Doe. Doe, also known as Marshall Hearth Applewhite, the leader of Heaven's Gate, when they met their inn in 1997. This is a recruitment video made around 1992. We have a big picture to try to portray to you. It's a low-rent production, like a public access cable show. Applewhite sitting in front of a blue background, just a couple of potted plants hinting at a room. And Applewhite's head, it fills up the screen. He's got this white hair cut into a kind of a ring, asexual bangs. You don't know us. You don't know what we represent. Applewhite stares straight into the camera at you. Change. It's just like that caterpillar has to drop. His mission is clear and relentless. He's proselytizing. He wants to convert you. Now I know I sit here petrified because I know that there you are saying, oh, So you're the second coming? Applewhite keeps tackling your doubts or the questions he imagines that you're having. And the lessons, they go on and on for 13 hours straight. You can't take any of the ties with this world into that world without knowing that you're going to have to return. One thing we do know is... You have to separate from the world. If you join a group that your family will call a cult, that's one thing. That's a whole journey. But to be the leader of it, to think people should follow you, that's a whole different thing altogether. Well, I'm going to back up and give you a little history. In this episode, we're going to talk about how this guy ended up where he did and how Marshall Applewhite is only half the story, or maybe even less than half. Because while at the end there was one leader, in the beginning, there were two. And what we're teaching you is what you need to know to qualify. You have a position waiting for you, but you have to qualify for it. This other one, this woman, she would become the religion's god. And Doe, Marshall Applewhite, at the end, would be her prophet and her interpreter to the world. And he would also become as far as many people are concerned, a murderer. This is Heaven's Gate, Episode 2, The Two. I'll tell you who I am. T and Doe, whatever they want to call us. Whether or not you believe is up to you. You, you, you. 
We all have to deal with demons. We're trying to teach you how to prepare yourself. You are members of the next level. The next level. So that recruitment video, Marshall Applewhite and its followers made in the early 1990s. Beyond Human might say something, it might not, but it says a lot to us, and we want to share it with you. That's some good titling right there, partly because a driving focus of Heaven's Gate was to help his followers shed themselves of all the crappy human things that hold us back. Lust, jealousy, attachment, control, addictions, but... Beyond Human resonates especially because the title is so unintentionally ironic. It's nakedly aspirational when the two people who started all this, they're so painfully human. In 1975, there were two individuals who came public and said that they were from the kingdom of heaven. And those two individuals were T and Doe. T and Doe. It's Applewhite who calls himself Doe. And Bailu Nettles, she calls herself T. Let's start with her. Bonnie Lou is the forgotten co-founder of Heaven's Gate. This is Ben Zeller. He's the professor and author you met last time. And he spent much of his adult life studying this group. Bonnie Lou is a traditional sort of conservative-looking older woman. She's sort of a comfortable middle age, shall we say. She's a mom, too, of four kids. And in 1972, she's a nurse at a big hospital in Houston. This is her in nurse's school, and this is her yearbook. And there she is right there. This is Terry Nettles. She's Bonnie Lunell's daughter, and she's the eldest of the kids. Terry lives in Dallas now, and despite everything that's happened, all the pain that Heaven's Gate brought, she is still a big fan of her mom. This looks like mom. Her hair is curled. It's still short, not as short. And there's her nurse's pen. I can show you her nurse's pen in there. In this photo that Terry's looking at, Bonnie Lou is holding a baby in the maternity ward. She's wearing a 60s nurse uniform, and there's a teeny tiny nurse cap floating on her big Texas hair. She seems pleasant, nurturing. We had a special bond. I didn't know at the time, uh, when I was like four years old, she had miscarried a little girl before me, and two twin boys were born, stillborn, and then came me. So I think I have to wonder if, if that isn't why she and I had such a special bond. She was my best friend, and I've never had a friend like her in my life. Terry remembers how they enjoyed many of the same things, like a certain movie featuring Julie Andrews twirling in the Alps. Let's start at the very beginning. Very good place to start. I love the sound of music so much that she made me a sound of music sailor dress. 
She made me two of them, actually. With do, re, mi. Do, re, mi. Do, re, mi. Closet's kind of a disaster, but um, I saw it the other day. Great. I don't know what that, here it is. Oh my gosh. It's a blue dress that my mom made that looks like the uniform that the kids wore in The Sound of Music. I've always kept this. A drink with jam and bread that will bring us back to dough. Oh, oh, oh. But Bonnie Lou's life was hard too. She worked long hours. There were some medical issues for the children, and her marriage was unraveling. Terry remembers this one night vividly when her mom came home from the hospital. Bonnie Lou was exhausted, looking at paperwork on the table from her divorce. She felt overwhelmed by all of it. But then she got up from the table and walked outside into the yard. Terry went with her. They looked up together at the stars. I don't remember if I saw it first or she saw it first. We saw this light in the sky that appeared to move in different directions. We would talk about how neat it would be if if it were a UFO and it would come down and pick us up and take us away. And we would speculate about what it would be like and, and going to different planets and because both of us wanted to leave this earth. You know, we didn't like it here. We didn't feel like we belonged here. Bonnie Lou was thinking more and more about the world outside her life. And she was trying to connect with it. She'd become a fan of a spiritual practice called theosophy. It's kind of like religion plus. It's God plus astrological charts, mysticism, ancient civilizations, personal awakenings, Lots of finding hidden meanings in science and the stars. In the early days when I was four years old, my mom's sister called my aunt, and I said she's, do, she's playing her, her astrology game. More than a game. She started doing people's charts on the side, and she even got an astrology column in the local paper. My mom told me it was a gift from God. And so I had no reason to doubt what my mom said. Bonnie interest became passion. And then her passion became more. Bonnie Lou felt she had gained certain abilities, certain insights. She didn't just read the stars. She claimed that she could access spirits from beyond the grave who could help her read the stars. So it wasn't just her who would tell you your future. She could communicate. Uh, one of her main spirit guides was, was Brother Francis, who was a Franciscan monk uh, from, from beyond the grave, who would come back and help her read the stars and, and tell the future. She talked about Brother Francis a lot. She did charge for people in my family and friends of hers. And she didn't want it to just be something that was thrown aside. She wanted it to help them. And she even did it for her, and that's 
how they finally met up. But we'll get to that meeting in a second. First, Marshall Hearth Applewhite, the dough to Bonnie Lou's tea. So to understand Herf, you have to understand that it was a long journey for him. Applewhite was born in Texas in 1932. And at first, he was drawn to the church. Evangelicals, fire, brimstone, the chosen people of God, that kind of church. So first he goes to, to seminary to be a minister like his dad. I mean, that's what he knows. But he's not happy there. He drops out. He, he decides he wants to study music. He joins the army for a while. He's, he's working for a while at university. He's working for a while uh, directing musicals. But he loses his jobs. And he ends up sort of bouncing around. He moves to New Mexico for a while. And eventually he runs this sandwich shop. Called the Sunshine Company. Which, come on. Why wouldn't you buy your lunch at the Sunshine Company? But he's not a particularly good sandwich maker, and he can't keep his sandwich shop open. So he ends up, again, sort of unemployed and basically unemployable, because what can he do? He can sing. Uh, He's good with people, but, you know, he, he can't make a career out of it. Soon, Applewhite's out of work. By his mid-30s, he's divorced. He's estranged from his two kids, and he's lonely for complicated reasons. To me, the key to understanding Applewhite is not his sexuality. Yeah, he was bisexual. We say he was closeted bisexual. He was only sort of closeted. He was pretty out in in the musical community. Yet, when he talked about his sexual failings, it was never, oh, I feel so bad that I'm gay. Oh, I feel so bad that I'm attracted to men. It was, oh, I feel so bad that I can't make a relationship work with anyone. So it wasn't his bisexuality, his attraction to men, that troubled him. It was his failure to connect to anyone on the human earthly level. In the early 70s, for unknown reasons, things we could not understand, my life began to suddenly fall apart. Applewhite told part of this story in the Beyond Human recruitment tapes. It had been a very stable life, an acceptable life, certainly one that was considered legitimate and and had respect to it in the community, as did T's life. And her life separately began to fall apart. Herb's life in this period diverged from sad and disappointing to desperate, maybe even more so than Bonnie Lou's. Herf starts to have these intense spiritual experiences where he feels a calling. He hears the voice of God, and God tells him that he has some sort of mission. There's something more to his life. And he can't process them. He knows God wants him to do something, but he can't figure out what it is. The the voices are deeply frightening to him. They're deeply overwhelming to him. This is not some sort of comforting reassurance. It's okay, uh, Herf, you've gone through enough in your life. You're going to get better. It's all going to be okay. That's not what's happening. Um, These are our voices which are challenging him. Now, this is where a lot of you might throw a flag on the play. On one hand, a guy hearing voices doesn't seem a grade A candidate to spiritually lead others. But on the other hand... 
if, if you wanted to find someone who thinks God is speaking with them as crazy, yeah, I suppose he's crazy. But then we're going to have to put a whole bunch of people in that crazy box. We're going to put St. Teresa. We're going to have to put uh, Jesus. We're going to have to put uh, Peter and Paul. If you want to put all the people in, in the history of the world who think Jesus or, or God or Christ or Krishna have talked to them into a crazy box, go ahead, but, but realize that all the religions in the world are going to end up crazy. And that moment of crisis of seeking and scrambling is where Bonnie and her stories collide in Houston in 1972. From that moment, my life changed, changed very significantly. In a moment, the two begin their journey together. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. We're back, and this is Marshall Applewhite again in the Beyond Human videos talking about meeting his soulmate. We met, just perchance, while I was visiting a sick friend in a hospital where T was a nurse. From that moment, my life changed, changed very significantly. Herf and Bonnie Lou meet in Houston, Texas in 1972. They met in a hospital when Herf was visiting a friend and Bonnie Lou Nettles was working there. There are other accounts of this moment. Applewhite's sister would say he was there because of a heart blockage. Others claim he was getting treatment for mental illness, but there's no real evidence for that. What we know for sure is that these two people ran into each other and they started talking. She does his astrological chart for him. She says that his fate is tied to her fate. His life is sort of at a wit's end. He is completely ready for a transformational moment. Bonnie Lou has the answer because Bonnie Lou can read the stars. There was something that compelled us to spend time together and listen to each other and search together. We were going through an awakening. If, if she had said, your fate is to go off to India, uh, you know, go meet a guru, then we would not have Heaven's Gate. That would have been it. But really importantly, she says to him that your fate is intertwined with my fate. And the two of them start that journey together, and eventually they just call themselves the two. 
Uh, but that's that moment in that hospital in Houston in 1972 when Heaven's Gate is born. Bonnie's daughter, Carrie, is a teenager at this point, living at home with her mom. I had my drums upstairs and I played drums. I, the first thing I do when I got out of bed was put Buddy Rich on my record player and play with Buddy Rich, you know. And before I walked out to say hi to anybody, anyone, I mean, that was the first thing I did. And um, I remember going downstairs and Herf was there. And it started happening that Herf was there a lot. Bonnie Lou and Herf, T and Doe, they believe they're connected, not sexually. Their relationship is different. They've got great things, divine things ahead of them. That's their fate. It's right there in their chart, literally in the stars. But what were they supposed to do? What were those great things? They still have to figure that part out. You know, first, they stay in Houston, and they open uh, this uh, this little sort of New Age bookstore, uh, the, the Christian Art Center. They sell books about the Dead Sea Scrolls and ancient Christian mystics, alongside theosophical books and stuff about the occult. And the bookstore fails almost immediately. But they try again. And another one called The No Place, that's K-N-O-W as in know thyself. And you got to admit, no Place is a great name. So they run these sort of this retreat center and this little Christian New Age bookstore. But they decide that they don't really want to serve people right now. They don't want to be selling books. They don't want to be leading people on spiritual retreats. They themselves have to read the books. They themselves have to go on the spiritual retreat. They're bigger than the No Place. They're bigger than Houston. And Bonnie decides it's time to leave her old life behind. It's a huge step. And for her daughter, Carrie, it's a shock. January 1st, 1973, I was doing Spotlight on a show at a club downtown that brought in musicians like Count Basie and Buddy Rich and Maynard Ferguson and people like that, big bands. And it was intermission, and she came to tell me goodbye that they were getting ready to leave. And I, I remember I was crying. You know, I, I didn't want her to leave. She said, you know, we'll be back. She says, this is just, we, we just need to find out what we're supposed to do. Bonnie Lou Nettles abandoned her family. There's no nice way to put it. Herf Applewhite had also lost ties to his two kids, but that estrangement began almost a decade earlier through the mess of his divorce. Here, Bonnie made a faithful decision to walk out. On the road of experience and trying to find my own way Sometimes I wish that I could fly away But don't get too judgy yet. It's hard to remember that in the 1970s, you were supposed to be on a journey of discovery. The idea was so prevalent, so mainstream, John Denver had a real hit song called Looking for Space that was a straight-up hymn to the founder of Est. And I'm looking for space And I find that 
how many pop hits can you name from recent years that are about the founder of a meditation movement? I can't name a one. This is the era of self-help and transcendental meditation, of moving into communes and finding one's inner light. People did this. But to be clear, when Bonnie Lou and Herf went on their search for meaning, they weren't just wandering. They already thought that they'd been chosen by God for something great. They just had to figure out what that was. They travel around the country on this journey of self-exploration, and they visit other New Agers, they visit various gurus, they visit bookstores, they visit alternative health centers, they, they stop and stay in churches. They move through the Texas Hill Country, then Arkansas, then Missouri. They swing through Las Vegas. No action there. They, they have no money. They have no money. So they, they take odd jobs. They're digging ditches at one point. But they do take a souvenir photo of themselves at the Money Tree Casino. Press slacks, big smiles, still looking normal enough, but all the while checking and rechecking their star charts, reading deeper and deeper into the Bible. And trying to determine if if they're sent from the great beyond, from the next level, in order to teach something to humanity. Because they think that God has a mission for them, they don't really feel like they have to follow the rest of our rules. So sometimes they'll, they'll split without paying the hotel bill. They head further west, California, then up north along the coast. And they spend uh, two years doing this, basically, trying to figure out what is, what is their destiny. Finally, they end up camping along the Rogue River in Oregon. And it's beautiful, serene. And here, communing with the Cascade Mountains above them, listening to the water rushing, the salmon swimming after years of searching, it finally happens. And at that moment, they come to certain belief that they are these two figures foretold in the book of Revelation, uh, the, the two witnesses whose job it is to be killed and to be resurrected and to demonstrate to humanity that death can be overcome. So, this revelation they get from the New Testament book of Revelations, I want to read this passage to you because it's really important. And know that Revelations 11 has inspired a lot of people who imagine they're prophets of the end times. Bonnie Lou and Herf saw themselves in this scripture. It starts, And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth, They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. So, these two are supposed to be humble and mighty, right? They hold tremendous power, but they live in poverty and humiliation. But it's not just that. They're delivering a message about God that is so scary to the listeners that they're going to be killed for it. 
And then, then there's this. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come Come up up here. here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. So that's what's in Revelation. And that's who Bonnie Lou and Herf realized they were. They were the two. God sent them to bring a terrible and beautiful prophecy about the end times to the earth. They were going to live an ascetic life and suffer and preach and then be struck down for their truth. And then God would resurrect them to demonstrate to one and all his truth and his glory. Yeah, this is big and breathtaking and crazy sounding. But I want to tell you, inside a religiously defined worldview, like the one I grew up in, all of this is normal. In apocalyptic circles, the two witnesses are a big deal. You don't just hear about them sometimes, you hear about them all the time, and they're undefined enough They're kind of out there enough that if you are a teenager growing up in Michigan in the middle of nowhere like myself, you might just wonder if maybe it's you. And yeah, (laughs) I kind of thought, I hoped, I wished, and I dreamed. And for a while, I believed uh, that I was one of the two witnesses. Laugh at me if you want to, but that's the truth. But as is their M.O., Bonnie Lou and Herf, they didn't just see themselves as the two prophets from Revelation. No, they took it one giant step further. So here's the really important part. Not just are they these two prophetic figures, but that they are prophetic figures from outer space. They're actually space aliens. And the rising from the dead is actually extraterrestrial technology. And they're demonstrating to humanity that extraterrestrial technology can change human bodies into extraterrestrial beings. And that by being resurrected, they are demonstrating this to humanity. They will then get onto a spaceship and fly off into outer space. And the rest of us are invited. And from here on out, the searching and the questioning and the seeking that so many were doing at the time of Bonnie and Herf, it hardened into belief. And now, they just needed to get others to believe it too. That's next.
We're back. After Bonnie Lou and Herf received their prophecy, they hit the road again. But now, they were not Bonnie Lou and Herf anymore. Now, they're the two. And it's not about finding a mission anymore. Now, what they're looking for is followers. They hit Vancouver, Oklahoma City, Texas again, Flagstaff. They're dedicated to their mission, but they also believe that they are destined to be martyred and to be killed. That's part of their story about themselves, that that they believe they're going to be rejected by the broader world. So their prophecy that they're particularly pointing to involves them being rejected. So they're ready for this. They're aware that they're going to have a tough time reaching people. And they're right. It was weird, and they were weird. Max Pavasic was a professor at Boise State University in Idaho in 1974. And uh, it was late one afternoon, and they just walked in my office, and uh, they started talking. And uh, they said they had been at the university bookstore, and they, they, they said, uh, my textbooks look the most interesting. So I said, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> and so maybe they were just wandering the halls. I don't know. And let's face it, making your pitch to people that you're those guys they mention in the Bible and you're from outer space and you're looking for people to go back to outer space with you. Well, this is just not an easy conversation to start with anyone. They just went into their routine uh, about uh, telecommunication and then UFOs and all this kind of stuff. And they were very sincere and they just kept on going and uh, asked me to leave everything behind. My wife, my children, my home, my job, everything and go with them, which I thought was a a bit much, but (laughs) they, they, they kept at it. He didn't go. T and Doe move on, crisscrossing the West, even back to Texas, where Bonnie would see her daughter Terry again after months on the road. She talked a little differently. Humanness does not grow a next level body. Her voice sounded a little different, and I don't know how to explain that. If you get up in the morning and you do all human things the way humans do it, then you have wasted that day. But I thought it was neat. You know, I thought it was kind of cool. I mean, I I felt special. How lucky can a kid be to have a mom that was chosen for a mission like this? I just remember that her from my mom made me feel like I was in the presence of something bigger than I could have possibly imagined. They snag a follower. They're first. Her name is Sharon, a Texas housewife. Now, Sharon doesn't stay long. But for them, it's proof that they can do this. This is my copy of, of the Bible that, uh, that they gave to Sharon. There's an inscription. To Sharon, the first fisherman to truly follow in our footsteps. The two lampstands, May 31st, 1974. The two lampstands, remember, from Revelation. For the two, the Bible was no longer a mystery. 
It was about them. So I'm looking at uh, this copy of uh, uh, the Bible. It's St. Matthew chapter 20. And they have starred for her to look at Matthew 20, verses 23 through 29. And they actually underline uh, verse 29. So I'll read it for you in case you don't have your copy of Matthew. This is Matthew 20, 29. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. So that's the advice which they're giving. Forsake your houses, your brethren, your sisters, your fathers, your mothers, your wife, your children, your land, your name's sake. You know, people are going to think you're crazy. You have abandoned everything you own, your families. If you do this, you shall receive a hundredfold and inherit everlasting life. That's what they underline and star uh, in this Bible they give her. And so you asked earlier about about nettles. Did nettles ever talk about or feel uh, uh, guilt for having abandoned her family? If you look at this Bible at this underlined starred section— you can see in there Nettles' own recognition, Applewhite's own recognition, that they had done this. They had abandoned children. They had abandoned their namesake. They had abandoned their lands. They had abandoned their spouses. But they were doing this because they believed that they were going to inherit everlasting life. And that was a blueprint for what they would ask of their followers. There was no going back, only forward, holding meetings, talking to strangers, proselytizing, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Ojai, and then north on September 14, 1975, back to Oregon, and in a small town called Walport, they held a meeting and hit pay dirt. I just took it all in and, and knew that this was what I wanted to do. He just happened to say a lot of the things that I had been thinking about and wondering if I needed to do take a, a, a more a definitive step. Something clicked. It's like, oh, well, this makes perfect sense. So it was just really intrigued us, pulled at us. I was really ready to walk out the door of my life at that point. And finally, and not for the last time, the two would make the world take notice. And by the world, I mean Walter Cronkite. The score of persons from a small Oregon town have disappeared. It's a mystery whether they've been taken on a so-called trip to eternity or simply been taken. Next time on Heaven's Gate. They said, okay, we've got the message from the next level. We're about to leave and just be ready because the saucer is coming. She said, Terry, do not let anyone know about it, especially that network woman, Nancy Brown. She is not to be trusted. They found out that we were looking for them. They did not like it. Uh, if you would uh, print in your newsletter the names of those parents who will promise not to kidnap family members, I'll promise you that most of these parents will hear from their loved ones pretty quickly. Thanks for listening. Heaven's Gate will be back next week. Our team includes Ann Hepperman, Barry Finkel, Diane Hodson, Josh Gwynn, Osa Secker, 
Jess Hackle, Ben Zeller, Dan Taberski, Peter Clowney, Casey Holford, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, and Chris Bannon. I'm your host, Glenn Washington. Some of you are pretty sleepy. I think you might ought to wake up. Stitcher. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.